you know, they weren't remotely supportive of democracy. Paul Weirich, you can look this up, there's a video where he says, I don't want everyone to vote. Our influence in elections goes down if voting, if the number of people who vote goes up and our influence in elections goes up if the number of people who vote goes down. And that's, that gets the fact this is an anti-democratic movement. They don't believe in representative democracy, you know? Yeah. Well, that sounds there. like a peach. <laughs> Usually you start. Do we need to get more casual with our intros? Yeah, we do. It feels awful. Yeah, I don't like them. <laughs> Should this be it? Should this be our intro? Should we start with this? Is, it? This is it. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to uh, Grown Up Christian, Casey and Sam. You know by now. And, and Sam has a story. It's kind of. <laughs> No, I was reminded of this is this is the worst start to any podcast ever, and I don't. I guess we'll just keep it. Um, all right. So I remember, um, you know, this week leading up to East, like as it's like leading up to Easter, you've seen like I don't know Easter memes and uh, all sorts of fun stuff. But I, I, it reminds me of when um, I was on a New York missions trip in high school, and I, I yeah, I mean it's Those just, unreached people groups yeah. in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it exactly reminds me of, uh, you know, how long, dude, it was funny. We stayed in um, a college, I don't remember what New York college it was, but we stayed in like the dorms and there was people there from, uh, you know, youth groups there from across the, the country, really. I mean, it wasn't like a ton. It was probably like three or four youth groups. Um, and one of them was a, a youth group from Georgia. And I, I met a kid through that, that he's still a good friend of mine. Like I, t- I, still talk to him regularly and um and i'm gonna i'll keep his name out of this some people like the shout outs on the podcast but this is a shameful story of his past so i'll I'll keep his name out of it but i do i bring it up to him from time to time and he's just like oh god can you stop but it was a um so they had like all these youth groups were together on like this college dorm that was the first time i realized some colleges had dorms where uh, boys and girls lived on the same halls and there's co-ed bathrooms. And I was like, it felt, it felt almost like we were really entering the darkness. Yeah. I was like, wow, this, I, how many, you're taking a shower and and you're like, I bet so many people have fucked in these showers. Like as a a young kid who had zero sexual experience. And, uh, but so my friend and his youth group, they had this kid in it and he was like the younger awkward kid and these are the stories that you know he probably is still uh processing this uh, but might even be in therapy because of it so uh, i'm not it's not again a super proud moment in my friend's life but they would they would chase him around the hall with like belts and things and be like it's time to play passion of the christ and he would just <laughs> run, around, run around screaming and I, <laughs> part of me felt like you know this kid liked you know those kids in youth group like the ones who steal your hat and shit that like seem to like the negative attention uh he uh-huh. seemed like he kind of was that kid too but i mean they never heard him or anything like that it was more just like it was really mostly silly but that was um I- i'm reminded of that story every easter <laughs> it's 
sounds like a great game. Yeah. I, but I remember at the time being Christian enough where I'm like, this doesn't feel like it's okay. But also re- thinking it's really funny at the same time. It was like a, a blending of like inappropriate humor with something that's supposed to be like very serious. You know what's funny is like when you think back on all the different like Sunday school lessons and stuff you sat through. And there were so many times when you're just like you're just bored because you're a kid and you're listening to a sermon and it's boring. And and so there was always like certain subjects that would like spark some excitement. Like uh, like there's like two passages in the Bible that talk about something that sounds like a dinosaur. Oh, you know what yeah, I'm talking yeah. about the, like the uh, Leviathan and what was the other one called? I should know this. It was um, I don't know. Leviathan and. It's uh, almost like watching like a Bigfoot show. Yeah. Like when they talked about that, you're just like, oh, man, maybe it's still around. And then I there know. would always be like some hearsay story about like uh, that somebody had about someone witnessing like the Loch Ness Monster or something. But uh I remember behemoth. like when it, it was behemoth. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had to look Super satanic band too. Yeah. I know. It's found <laughs> in the book of Job. Ironically, the only, um, the only references to what people might consider to be, uh, dinosaurs are in a book. That's uh, a poetic book that isn't grounded in than <laughs> the nature of reality. So that's fun. Yeah. Well, cause dinosaurs are a lie. Did, did you ever think though, that like, that the Loch Ness monster like might have been real and was just like a dinosaur, and that you oh yeah, people, I loved you, all that stuff. Yeah, you wanted people to find it because it would like would prove evolution wrong. Yeah, I th- that that kind of stuff was uh, I don't know. I I always love that kind of stuff. I still like that kind of crap. I know. Like, I mean, I would accept it if the, I would. I would rather if I would because I'm just used to admitting that I've been wrong about everything at this point in my life. Uh, I I would really prefer that to be true like if that happened you wouldn't really see me dig my heels in i'd be like sweet i I would rather dinosaurs be alive today than be right about evolution let's put it that way (laughs) (laughs) way more fun i'm gonna saddle one like wasn't there like a book series when we were kids where they like rode dinosaurs yeah there we go (laughs) yeah it was like goosebumps dinotopia animorphs yeah, oh god, animorphs were great. <laughs> I think we were talking about what what was it one day we were talking about where it was like we were saying like Steve Bannon looks like a mid-transition anamorph. Like he's turning <laughs> he's turning into like a catfish or something. <laughs> or an anglerfish. <laughs> yeah, that that was definitely one of those passages. And then um you know, anytime they talk about something super gruesome, I feel like we were interested in. So like when Easter rolled around, they would talk about like Jesus being, uh, what's the word? Crucified. Chast- Casey. Ch- you don't remember what, him being uh, crucified? <laughs> of course I remember that. <laughs> I what was it? They, uh, they did something to him. It's like a one word explanation, but then they, they had to ex- expound upon what that meant. Uh, like it means they, they, they whipped him and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not chastised. I don't know. Anyways, they would like always explain what a cat of nine tails was Uh, like, you know, uh, it was a whip with, you know, several different leather 
thongs that came off of it and they would tie glass and stuff to it. And I don't know how they knew that. You know, they just wanted to use the word thongs in a sermon. That's the only thing they really cared about. They're just like, speaking of excitement, getting away with it. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, it's funny that they would, they would. All right. Like again, I'm not trying to like be dismissive or like, like, I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to, whatever the crucifixion story. I mean, go ahead. I'm dismissive. I'm obviously, I still resonate with the Christian message, but I, I think it's so funny how they like, there's this need to make it like the, they need to make it as like, you won't, you, you grew up with this understanding or impression that Jesus was the only person that that type of thing ever happened to. And they, and they really glorify like the torture aspect of it because they want it to be particular it's like they want to make his crucifixion special well, the rest deserved it and yeah <laughs> right <laughs> and they which is so like it's like they I were mean, like they like cheated on their taxes and stuff. exactly <laughs> yeah exactly so it's so funny they really play up like jesus's crucifixion They're like well his was worse than everybody else's okay and it's like it wasn't i mean there was I mean, crucifixion just isn't great, and a lot of people went through it. Uh, I, so they kind of get lost in like the the whole message of like his crucifixion or his death needs to be worse than everybody else's, as though it somehow like contributes to the real point of the story, which is that like I'm I mean, he rose from the dead. Like I, I, how bad his execution was doesn't actually have a, a whole lot to do with with the rest of the story. I mean, it's not, not a part of it. I think that it's like, there's a going into it to some degree and understanding what crucifixion is, is great, but it's like they, there's just weird need to make his crucifixion. Like, Oh yeah. Well, my Lord and savior's crucifixion was even worse. My dad could beat up your dad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's like just, it's injecting drama into it. Yeah. And it kind of like continually plays up the, you know, the, the sort of like guilty feeling, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably it. Cause they're like, look, he suffered and died for your sins, for you. This is your fault. This is your fault. You did this. <laughs> they rub your nose in it. They're just like, look what you did. <laughs> what was, what was some of the other ones that like, if they, if they started talking about a certain subject, what were some of the ones that you were like, Ooh, all right, I'm listening. Oh boy. I don't honestly, I, anytime that got into like, cause I was like a nerd about like the apologetic stuff at that time in my life. Every time oh, man. I know it's, it's hard to imagine now, but uh, anytime that got into like fulfillment of old Testament prophecies and stuff like that, I was like it, it, being fulfilled in Jesus. I'm like, Ooh, like this is fun stuff. Like this is the stuff that I can go around and saying to people, like, look, look, it said this 2000 years ago and Jesus did it. And then I remember the first time getting a response or just like, yeah, like Jesus was reading that book. Like he knew like, <laughs> and it would be like, and Jesus did this so that he fulfilled the prophet, like the old Testament prophets in this way and that way. And you're like, oh, so he knew, oh, he might. Okay. Like anyone could have just been like, I did this. Like, this is what they're waiting for. And you could just like do it. And be like, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it's up to, it's still up to people to like believe it and interpret the prophecy in that way. So I was, I remember the first time being confronted with that. I'm just like, don't know where to go from here. <laughs> oh man. I feel like I was the exact opposite. Like that was the stuff that really just uh, put me to sleep. 
Really? Like our our uh, if if you're not in our Discord server, you should join. But uh, it got a little off the rails this week. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit. Just uh, I did not participate in that. Also, by the way, so <laughs> I think it. I don't know. I think you enjoyed it. I thoroughly hated it, but you were probably you know popping wood over that whole thing. <laughs> There's no. I, I I mean I can't let I can let some stuff go. I I but I. I, I, it was hard for me to not get involved, I guess. Yeah, there was just a lot of, uh, you know, uh, stereotypical uh, is God real sort of debate going on. And some of it was a little childish, I feel like. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> like, not from you, not from you. But I don't know. I You know, I remember like always getting excited when they said they were going to talk about Revelation. Like that was an exciting, that was like a, a subject that seemed like it was going to be really exciting, but I feel like it never was like, that was like a, it never delivered. Yeah. It was always, I, maybe it kind of, I felt like it delivered for me a bit. I just remember when they would talk about it and, you know, my, I mean, your church probably similarly, but my church would get into like the prophecy aspect of it. Our, so the church that I was at, um, the pastor of it at the time was like, I don't, he was the pastor when I stopped going. Yeah. Their, their pastor changed after I had left. They have a, the guys, their pastor now isn't, I uh, wasn't the pastor when I was there, but so that the pastor who was there, which was a nice guy. I liked him. I, I, I didn't know him that well, but he was like, I, yeah, I liked him. I thought he was a good guy. And the times that I had conversations, just a fun, like jovial kind of person. And, um, you know, I had some good interactions with him from time to time, but he was really big. Was it? I don't know. I think it was dispensationalism. I want to say he was like a dispensationalist, which is just that whole, like everything's divided up into sections. And it's like, at this point in time, God acted like this. And then we move into a new dispensation. And then like, it usually ends like with your typical, like revelation stuff. And I remember getting occasionally like occasionally getting like revelation sermons there. I, it's, I don't remember a lot about being in church. Like, I mean, I remember a lot about being in church, but who remembers like all the sermons they heard. Right. But there oh, are those sermons. few that Yeah. Very few. Out. And so the revelation ones, uh, yeah, for me were like that too. And you, so they would go so far as to get into like, you know, when it's talking about X, Y, and Z, it might be tanks and helicopters in this day and age. And they would oh, kind of the get, bear is Russia and yep, stuff the, like that. The eagle is uh, is the US and whatnot. Yeah, it was always super speculative. I don't they never said anything is or was certain. Um, you know, as a, I don't know that anybody really does. They usually just our, speculate our pastor hard. didn't either. It's just heavy. I, I feel like our pastor avoided like jumping into like the crate you know the the really far out there stuff but then yeah, you had like yeah. sunday school teachers and stuff that were around speaking of dinosaurs so we had this one guy he was super nice uh just a little weird he was like an older single dude that that helped out with the youth group and uh just kind of an odd odd dude he was very stuck in like the late 80s like occasionally you'd see him in town and he had like a curly mullet, almost like a nineties Howie Mandel. Jerry you curls. Know? Yeah. <laughs> and he would be in like a, a real stringy, like gold's gym tank top and some neon shorts. And he'd be like rollerblading through town. Nice. 
and that was just like his aesthetic. But I remember him at one of our, uh, it was like our Wednesday night Awana things. We were talking about dinosaurs and he was like speculating that maybe God just put those bones in the ground to test our faith. Oh God. And I don't know if that, if that's a, uh, like a theory that anyone else has, or if that was just him. But I remember like, even at that point, listening to that and being like, that is, that's insane. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, that is a theory that some people propose. And it's like that. I, I love those types of theories. Cause it's like, it, that's the clearest cut example of how can I make, like, how can I excuse any form of anything that makes my belief system uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable when it challenges my belief system instead of just like, I don't know, accepting certain things to be true based on like the merit of the science done around it or just the physical presence of them. Like to, to leap from this, this causes a problem for the, for the worldview that I've built to God must have just put them here to tr to, to test our faith. Then it's just so <laughs> right. I don't even know how to articulate how insane that is. It just well, anyone, anyone who got that message like towards the end of that, like that was what fa they would they phased out not too long after that. They're just like this doesn't even make sense. I remember like that guy proposing something else that was really outlandish, and I like talked to my youth leader about it. He was an old guy. Mr. Atchison, super nice dude. I, I really liked him when I was in like junior high and stuff. But uh, I remember asking him about something that this guy had said. And he was like, you know, he goes, I think so-and-so's dad passed away and he wasn't a Christian. And so I think that this is part of him like rationalizing how maybe his dad, you know, is in heaven after all. Mm -hmm. And it was like, after that, I kind of like took some of what he said with a great assault. I'm like, ah, man, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of sad. Yeah. You, you, that's like one of those things that's hard to account for, but you know, when people say outlandish things in those settings, you almost have to like stop and wonder like, is there some sort of very human motivation for this person needing to think this? And if so, like maybe we give them a little bit of leeway you know right yeah yeah of course i mean i feel like again i think we touched on this a little bit uh when we were talking with with mike uh an episode ago and it's just like look when when certain when actually i do ride the fence because I, I do say frequently that i'm not interested in taking away you know people's I'm not, i don't care about like my goal isn't to tear anything down for people or whatever um unless that systems causing certain people objective harm which i so i draw i, I kind of straddle the fence between like the harm that certain theologies can cause people uh and not so much people but indirectly others so like when i think of like the type of theology that i was given um you know maybe a liberty when i was getting a bible degree or the stuff that i internalized going up in church it was like when it comes to like like climate science or think I even trying to think of a few, or even like, again, my, you know, creation that gives you like this, this platform or foundation in which to build some like anti-science 
like beliefs on because you're you're already in magical thinking you're already kind of in like this yeah this mode of magical thinking where you can just like well if this can occur then then anything's possible and anything that rubs that the wrong way doesn't i can make up an explanation for it and we'll be good so it's weird because i you know there are people who gravitate towards certain systems of belief when you think of people who led the like reckless drug addict lives a lot of times it's not uncommon for them to find their like to gravitate towards like conservative Christianity because it provides like the structure and rules and they find a good community there and it helps them. It really, I mean, it's it, objectively, it's a good thing for them and their mental health and their staying uh, clean and sober or whatever it is. But then, you know, you look at, so you look at how it's actually beneficial and helpful towards some people. And then you also look at all of us that grew up in it and they're like, it just feels like looking back on the way that they dealt with, issues of sex and issues of science and like this depravity of man type stuff that makes you feel like that self-loathy every time you fuck up. It's, um, you know, we, we've internalized it. And I think that's the difference between like growing up in it and, and, and internalizing those messages versus adults who walk into it after their brains have fully developed and they can just be like, they can cognitively understand those things as quote unquote facts. but it doesn't affect them or hurt them the same way it did people who internalized it through their development. It's like, yeah, that's you, like you, kind of what I'm theorizing as a you have the life experience nothing. to like put it in context to some extent. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, you're totally depraved and you're like, okay, like I feel, I don't feel that way. And that's why you would get those feelings about like the anti feelings messages about it too. It's just like, you might feel like you're fine. And kids are like, I don't know if I feel like I'm fine. But the pe- people who maybe were converted to Christianity in their 20s were like, yeah, I thought I was good. So now hearing these messages of like, but you're not like, and you need Jesus to save you. You can, you don't internalize the shame and self-hatred that some of us uh, learned at, at that as kids, um, even though it wasn't specifically outright taught. I, of course, there are plenty of people listening to this too who grew up in way more extreme circles than than I did, and they probably were actually like hit over the head with like a you sh- like your trash kind of message uh, outside of Jesus. So, so uh, anyway, we should probably uh, be closing out here. And um, but you know, I just want to introduce uh, and set up our guest who who we're going to be talking to after the break. Uh, we're going to be talking to Catherine Stewart, who wrote a book called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of the of Religious Nationalism. And uh, I had started reading the book. I didn't get all the way through it, uh, but you know, I bought the book after we set up the, uh, the ability to be able to have an interview with her. And she was great. Um, you know, she has, uh, her works appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, American Prospect, The Atlantic. She's been an investigative journalist for a long time. And, um, you know, we just had a really fun, I guess fun's a weird word for it, but a really informative and, and interesting conversation with her about religious nationalism. Yeah, she is an absolute authority on this subject yeah. and just has so much information uh, at her fingertips, you know, just on call at all times. So she had some cool perspectives on some of what we're seeing out there in the world and what we've dealt with over the past 20 some years here. And you know, some ideas about where it's headed. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. Uh, we were happy to have her on. Uh, felt a little outclassed by 
<laughs> oh, she's, yeah. she's a different caliber of human than us. So we, we were trying to keep up, but uh, yeah, just a really, uh, really interesting lady. And then we, we did have a little bit of trouble with the audio yeah. uh, for this episode. So you'll hear some kind of rustling and stuff like that. Um, it's just, just how it went this time. Sometimes, uh, you know, with certain equipment, it's just kind of inevitable, but I don't think it'll find that to be too big of a distraction. Uh, so anyways, hope you enjoy this conversation with Catherine Stewart. And uh, again, if you haven't joined the discord server yet, uh, come on in, man. It's uh it's fun. It's, we got a really good group of people in there now. There's a quite a few people in it and uh, everybody's got some really interesting stories and takes on things. And, uh, funny videos and stuff like that. Uh, especially if you, if you had any weird religious, like cartoon shows, sing-alongs, whatever, uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we need to see those. Like you need to ruin our day with those, those videos. So find the discord link in any of our social media. You'll find it on there. And again, enjoy our talk with Catherine Stewart. Hey everybody, we're back with our guest, Catherine Stewart, the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And um, well, first of all, Catherine, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thanks for hanging out with us. I have um, been slowly getting through uh, this book. Uh, I really love it. It hits very close to home. Oh, love it's a weird word because the information in it is very... Um, uh, difficult to get through, but it's been um, a very informative read. And, uh, you know, I know that the catalyst for for this book was your previous book, The Good Girls, uh, why did I say that? The Good News Club. <laughs> and um, so I kind of just want to get a little backstory on that for our listeners so they can kind of get an introduction to who you are, what you're writing about, and why you're writing about it. So why don't you yeah. kind of give us a, a little uh, short of it? Oh, thanks for um, asking. It really started with a very personal experience in my daughter's public elementary school in Santa Barbara, California. This is back in 2009, and I learned that an older couple from another town uh, was planning to set up a good news club in our daughter's public elementary school. It's a really sweet little school. Um, uh, I think it was in the same district as an evangelical college, so perhaps a third to half of the parents were evangelical, but nobody, you know, really counted. But it was a very, there were a lot of other uh, members of other uh, Christian denominations and religious denominations as well. So it was religiously diverse, as probably almost every public um, elementary school is. And um, I learned that the, you know, from my first thought was, oh, I love good news. But then, you know, the, I discovered that the aim of the club was to indoctrinate children as young as five in a really deeply fundamentalist form of the Christian faith. Um, the centerpiece of their program was called the Wordless Book. You might be familiar with it. It's um, used to convert children who are too young to read. It only has words and shapes in it and colors. And um, so they're really targeting very little kids in those earliest years of learning. So a group of the um, Westmont-affiliated parents got together. These are evangelical women themselves. They were, you know, uh, women who did this. And they got together with the uh, Good News Club leaders, and they said, yeah, you know, we're evangelical. We agree with the Great Commission, but you're just not right for our school. We'd like to offer you free and better space 
in the church that was literally next door to the school at the same time. Beautiful church. And they refused. And they insisted on holding their club in the school. And then I started to really ask, like, why do they need to be in the school when they could be in this, you know, Montecito Covenant Church? You know, what do they really believe? You know, and and I I realized that they really wanted to be in the public school because they would re- they knew that their message um, would appear to be coming from the school um, in the minds of little children. Like public schools have a kind of cloak of authority, as you know, in the minds of little kids. And they cannot distinguish between an activity that's taking place in their school and one that's sponsored by their schools. If it's in their school, it, it seems to have the stamp of approval of the school. Um, you know, anyone who has little kids or works with them um, knows that. So um, they referred to our public school as their mission field, and they referred to our children as the harvest. So I thought their plan was really inappropriate in a religiously diverse public school. But at first, I, I thought it was like a, a freak occurrence, and I was really wrong about that. So I thought, you know, I really wanted to look into this club and see what they were all about. And I published a book in 2012 uh, called The Good News Club, um, The Christian Right Stealth Assault on America's Children, um, in which I showed that the Good News Clubs are really just one small part of an attack on public education, and that the drive to end public education, as we know, it, is just one part of a, a larger movement the Christian nationalist movement that really is trying to transform the defining institutions of our country, of democracy in America, um, and frankly is organized around a vision uh, for the future that I think most Americans, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike, would would find important. So, yeah, go on. Was this, uh, so was this the first time you've persecuted Christians or... (laughs) You know, if I had been told I was going to write a book about religion and public education before this point, I would have thought you were hallucinating. I would have told you so. I had published a couple of novels. Um, I had a really great job writing for Santa Barbara magazine. Um, uh, I had a history in investigative journalism uh, because I, I trained as a journalist with a late great investigative reporter, Wayne Barrett who wrote the first biography of Donald Trump, uh, uh, coincidentally. But, um, you know, I had, you know, I got married, had a couple of kids, and had a very different kind of a life at that point. But, um, you know, I sort of fell down that rabbit hole. <laughs> you certainly didn't lose any of your journalistic skills as I'm reading through this book. I'm like, this is a lot of information. <laughs> like, there's... Yeah, the amount of digging and research that went into it. How long were you writing the? How long did you work on the power worshippers? Because I feel like it must have been a long time. Yeah, the um, power worship is the culmination of ten years of research and reporting in that area. <laughs> wow. And you know, I, I did a lot of like on the ground research. That's something I learned to do um, uh, from my training with Wayne and beyond. You know, you, you go there, you listen to what people say. I think. You know, listening is really underrated. <laughs> so I would go to a lot of the strategy meetings and gatherings and interview leadership, members of the leadership cadre and members of the rank and file. And uh, and they were just willing to put it, I mean, obviously in a meeting in a place where they're feeling at their most comfortable, they have no, what, real idea of who you are. They just think they're talking to someone who's on the same page as them and lets it all go. <laughs> Well, I just went places I was allowed to go, and sometimes I was invited in. It's interesting. Uh, chapter four of the Power Worshippers is about 
an ex-gay pastor who is now very much involved in building a pastoral network in California. I had published an, a piece about him and his um, project in the New York Times. And look, I'm clearly an opposition journalist, but I'm careful with the facts. And he reached out to me and he said, thank you for that piece. And he said, you know, my mother read it and said that every detail is correct. And then he invited me to an event that I ended up turning into chapter four, which I thought was pretty interesting. He and I are still in sort of some contact. So, oh, really? even, yeah. So even though there are, um, you know, uh, a lot of the leaders, they, they publish terrible things about me in print, but then they back channel with me. He's not the only one. So it's pretty interesting. To keep up the facade of resistance, even if there is like a mutual respect there. You know, it's really funny. I think people want to show their work, right? And I think people feel validated when you write about it, because I think that a lot of the media is frightened to cover the political aspects of religion. I think um, religion is really hard, like the, the sort of political aspects of religion are hard to cover because you know, it touches on something that we like to think of as, as very personal, and that's, you know, religious faith. And most Americans, myself included, would like to just sort of, it would be a nice world if we could allow one another to have our faith, if any, and sort of deal with politics and policy without, you know, having to, you know, without regard to that private world. But there's a movement in our country now that really is set itself at odds with democracy and um, is trying to bring us into sort of more authoritarian form, form of governance and is, um, you know, degrading the public discourse and trying to, um, you know, degrade our public institutions. And so it's kind of an all hands on deck moment. And I've, I sort of felt like I had to do my part. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, th- that movement where super aware. So I was actually, um, I was homeschooled uh, my entire childhood. Um, for the obvious reasons. Um, what, and, uh, what, what textbooks did your parents use? Like, um, did they use like a Becca or did they did use? Just, use the like, yeah. just the Bible. Just the Bible. It's so funny that I actually have a hard time remembering which textbooks I even used. They had so, well, it had, I paid so little attention then and just was like, we used the right ones. So they're just the good ones that, especially when it comes to like history, because you know, I think one of the more like the fat most not to um, be overly specific and go down the rabbit hole, but one of the uh, very fascinating chapters was um, kind of on the revisionist history done around Thomas Jefferson and his impact and his affiliation with Christianity or more like lack of affiliation with it. But, um, you know, I got that. I mean, that, that my history education was, of course, it was like this the general overarching uh, historical education you get for American history, but the, the undertones of Christian, like the, it being a Christian nation and, uh, and how distinctly Christian. And uh, what's so strange about it too, is when you look back on where we were at, at that time in history and like the arguments that were being even had amongst Christians about what it meant to be Christian. It's just like, this is such, it's so strange to look back on the, getting that type of one-sided education and, and see how, the holes are just obviously there. And I feel like with any level of, if you're going to scrutinize it in any way, instead of just accept the information is true because someone in authority said it, which is not uncommon at that age, but um, it just doesn't take a lot of effort 
to see through it. And I mean, Casey had even, he went to, are you maybe in your study, you're familiar with the ACE program mm-hmm. of school. Yeah. That's, that's where he comes from, which is even like, I'm that's a success like story. That's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, my books like literally whitewashed the Confederacy in some ways. Wow. It was kind of like a, they, you know, their, their approach was uh, slavery is wrong. But, you know, there was a lot of really good things about the Confederacy. And, you know, they had these wonderful tent revivals that went on in Confederate camps. And and Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee were good Christian men. You know, this was about states' rights and independence and, you know, the typical things we've all heard. But, yeah, that was my textbook, though. I mean, that's was taught not as a, an angle. That was fact. Wow, that's intense. And throughout those textbooks, there are these little comics in them um and the the black kids and the white kids went to different schools in them so if that's not a weird wow. thing to put into a christian education textbook i don't know what it is. i mean they would talk to each other once in a while <laughs> that's unbelievable and that's amazing so i mean you know a lot of that sort of history gets filtered through people like david barton who is the um you know the he's been peddling a sort of alternate version of american history sort of fake um, Christian nation history uh, for a very long time, since the early 1990s, for sure. And um, he's really popular in that movement because he, he sort of tells the movement uh, the stories that they want to hear. And the stories are fundamentally false or misleading, but it really doesn't stop him or them, right? There are these, he's promoting these myths that are necessary to provide cover for the great lie at the center of Christian nationalism. Would he and and his other, you know, other leaders of the movement don't want us to know is that America's founders proudly and explicitly created the world's first secular republic. And, you know, they would like us to think that all of our founders, you know, were united in their sort of Bible something uh, religion. And the opposite is true. Um, a number of them were deists. They were really a heterodox group. Some were more religious than others. Some understood religion in a very different way. But um, they, uh, you know, explicitly created a, a um, you know, a, a secular public with no religious test for public office. You know, what's kind of interesting is like on this subject, um, I feel like, you know, when I really started like tuning into politics and, and world affairs and stuff to some extent, you know, it was post 9-11 when I was in, you know, early stages of high school. I listened to a lot of talk radio, you know, all the way through like the, you know, early t- or late 2000s. And it seems like there's a common thread. There's very little, especially before that era, that would have brought like fundamentalist Christians and groups like the Mormons together. Mm-hmm. But th- this Christian nationalist thread seems to be like one of the things that they have in common. And that's, you know, seeing like, right-wing Christian leaders that, you know, I mean, not, not in the past couple of years, obviously, but like supported like Mitt Romney and some of these guys, it's just weird how that, like that, that thread seems to bind some of these unlikely, uh, you know, allies together. It's really true. And I've tried to show that this is a movement that's not all about evangelicals. I mean, the movement includes many evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals too, including some number of white evangelicals and most evangelicals of color. And it also includes like 
you know, a cohort of ultra conservative Catholics. And then, uh, you know, some Pentecostals and Charismatics, of course, which I think is a very under, underexplored part of the movement. And um, it even draws support from some individuals uh, and groups that don't identify as Christian at all. And what seems to unite them is not a, um, you know, distinct theology, but more like a common political vision. And that, so I guess let's look at what that common political vision is, because so with, you know, with Christian nationalism, it's like, if it's, if it's, if it's holding a place for all these people of differing ideologies or maybe slightly different religious persuasions, because especially, I mean, growing up, I, there wasn't a whole lot that was bringing uh, Catholics and evangelicals together. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I definitely grew up having some real, you, if you were a Catholic, you had to really prove to me that you were actually a Christian. Like you, there was no just benefit of the doubt. Um, and there was probably some things I'd ask you to officially denounce at that point too. But <laughs> I, so what is it? So for, but for the non-religious, like with Christian nationalism, it's like that God had his hand in the establishment of this country. And I, they usually point to biblical principles and ideals, which I don't, I, I, I think and even in the past, some conversations we've had with, recent guest it's like we're trying to even get at what that even means because that's a term that i heard my entire life uh going back to biblical principles but i mean there's a lot of principles in the bible um and i don't even the way they're selecting them is is very um uh feels manipulative but Mm -hmm. what is it if it's not if people are not religious and how is it how is it pulling them in what what's the appeal if they're not too concerned about whether or not god has a hand in where this country's going Okay, so there's, you know, most, listen, Christian nationalism involves the claim that the United States was founded um, on the Bible, you know, this it, that its foundation is bound up with a very reactionary understanding of, of religion. So it's an anti-democratic political ideology. It's also a way of mobilizing people to vote for hyper-conservative political candidates and for uh, concentrating power in the hands of what is essentially a new elite. It's a form of identity politics in that it's tying the idea of America to specific cultural and religious identities. And um, I think it draws in some number of people who may not be the religious themselves. But, you know, when they're talking to the so let's unpack this a little bit. I think when we're discussing the movement, it's really helpful to distinguish between the leaders and the rank and file. When you're talking to the rank and file, you're talking about a very wide range of people with different interests, backgrounds, and ideas. And a substantial number of them don't really explicitly support anything like a theocracy, or they'd be frankly unhappy to learn all of the uh, details about the policies the leaders are promoting. Uh, I think this group votes identity, really, and not just policy. Um, but for the leaders of the mo- movement, um, like the heads of the right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy groups, networking groups, and legislative initiatives and stuff like that, their vision involves a lot more power for themselves and their networks. Um, they're, I think people, to a largely underappreciated degree, the movement is allied with libertarian sort of far-right economic um, ideology and those who promote it. So you have people like the Koch brothers, since you, Casey, um, you're familiar with them. My hometown uh, heroes. There you go. Um, who weren't, you know, Charles, uh, David Koch was famously pro-choice. 
I mean, what's very interesting, they're not, they're not, I wouldn't call them, you know, motivated by religious nationalism itself, but they contributed through their donations to a lot of the organizations that are sort of um, in that space um, or utilized by the Christian nationalist movement, for instance, the uh, data initiative I360. And so the sort of libertarian, uh, fund the free market fundamentalists and the religious fundamentalists go hand in hand in a way. Sometimes they sort of collaborate in different ways in some of these initiatives. I mean, really, if you didn't have the culture war issues like abortion, these sort of shiny baubles to dangle in front of the rank and file to get them to vote one way or another, how on earth would you get them to vote for economic policies that are, you know, destroying the middle class and making life so much harder for so many American families? We're really in another gilded age like with widening economic inequality. So, um, you know, in a way, the um, those culture war issues are selected very carefully to get people to vote a certain way. I mean, they know very well if you, if you can get people to vote on the issue of abortion, you can control their vote, you know, and then they might ignore the sort of far-right economic policies that those politicians also happen to be supporting. So I, I feel like you, you touched on it, and um, I, I think I want to maybe hash that a little bit more, is that the difference between, like, these major players and the, the people that they've – that they've convinced to vote for them or support them or donate to them. And obviously the vehicles by which that they've mobilized these people is uh, the, the heavy hitters like abortion. Um, I, it's, it's weird because like, I, I haven't really considered too much that, you know, whether or not the people in my life that, are supporting very directly, um, you know, Christian nationalists and that type of worldview. And that's, it's, it's really, I mean, they, it's, it's less than, I mean, it's something they really believe in too. Um, they've been convinced of the message. It's not like they just see, they just vote down the, the, the ballot and just do all the R's and then move on. Like they're pretty invested. They, and have really been convinced that, that is that, that that that's the truth of where we came from and that that the most important thing is getting back to to our roots quote unquote and i i think i'm coming to terms now with the ability to say okay they are christian nationalists and uh, but i don't know that they know they are by that name or maybe they do know that and so i i think the difference between these major players and then some i would say good generally good people when that when i look at the way they live and move in the world beautiful wonderful people that have been very uh, wonderful to i mean just myself but many people around them um and i and i've learned from them and i i have a lot of respect for the way they conduct themselves as people in this world so that makes it almost more difficult and and, and saddening when i see them latching on to things that are i mean just ideologies counter to the way that they actually live in this world. So I know their motives and I, I know their, like their hearts, despite them. And of course, good intentions lead to bad things all the time, but it might be hard to parse out, but the intent of the people who started it and, you know, we could, one of the people that you mentioned, Barton, um, obviously, and, and his influence in revising history, almost unchecked and, and the influence that he's had on people like the leaders that I've seen in my life, um, you know, your Jerry Falwells, your 
Pat Robertson's, your, um, you know, although heavy hitters that if you're a millennial, you've, your parents were paying attention to. And they, the only one I could speak to specifically is Jerry Falwell. Like on a personal level, I never heard a bad thing about him. Um, everyone seemed to appreciate his candor and he was a kind of a jolly old man. And, you know, they, I don't, I, I question and I wonder frequently if these are the, if, and I, you're the one that even has interaction with some of them today, but it's like, they can be so, they have such good rapport with people in person and then their, their policies are seemingly counter to their, their, their gospel, but also the way that they live in the world. So is it just, does it seem to just be a grab for power? Do they just want to tell people how to live? I, it's so hard for me to understand their motivation because it doesn't seem like they're gaining much from it. Um, I don't know what they're gaining from it. You know? Well, I think when we're talking about, you know, let's talk about, you know, the leadership and the rank and file, and we're talking about two different sets of people. I mean, I too have met many people, uh, you know, members of the rank and file who are, really think mean well, um, like, you know, when they're establishing good news clubs in public schools, they, you know, they're ignoring the division they're creating in public schools and the pain they're causing for public school families. But they really do think that they're doing something good. But, you know, all of their good intentions, you know, a lot of them are kind people. And I've seen, you know, them being really nice to, you know, um, you know, friends and strangers, you know, equally. But, you know, a lot of those good intentions are being harnessed in service of an agenda that is, uh, you know, speaking specifically about good news clubs, it's harming our public schools. It's harming public education as a whole. It's causing harm to children and families. And it's a contrib- contribution, a, a contributing to the sort of division within communities. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about the leadership cadre, you know, are they just, um, you know, the question is, are they really sincere? in trying to serve what they perceive to be their, you know, religious purpose, or is it just a ruse to gain power? And, you know, I think it's really hard to speculate about the interior minds of a group of individuals, and we can't really know what all of them are really thinking. But I actually don't see those two categories as mutually exclusive. I'm Hmm. inclined to think for a lot of the leadership, it's all of the above. I think many of them believe they have a direct line to God, and and they think they're doing, uh, you know, they see themselves engaged in an absolutely apocalyptic struggle with absolute evil, not with people who have a different political opinion, but with absolute evil. You know, they, they identify the say democratic party with the forces of darkness. And I think also many of those movement leaders identify their own power and, and money that they receive from being um, part of this movement as evidence of divine favor. We can't forget that there are huge amounts of money involved. I mean, Many of these leaders could raise significant sums from their audiences, but also from sympathetic, wealthy donors. And they also end up assuming positions of power because they get funding for the initiatives like the um, policy groups that they lead or the ministries that they're running. So I I leave it to others to judge to the extent to which this kind of availability of money is going to exist with pure uh, purity of motive. Yeah, I think we see that a lot with... um you know, on a smaller scale, um, thinking about some of these mega churches and you've seen these pastors, uh, and religious leaders who don't really have maybe as much of a political agenda, but you see the way that, you know, stuff comes out about them and how, 
it's 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 you know you could make the assumption that they were always just these evil rotten people that did these things but it seems like um you know their growth in their you know they probably just did when they had a small church of 100 people or so i i doubt they functioned similarly you know i, I it's hard to imagine that they didn't grow into that as the, the power increased and their uh they were had a little bit more of an unchecked life and could kind of get away with certain things you know it's one of the things i did when i was researching power worshippers is i really investigated these pastoral networks that draw in tens of thousands uh, in the case of watchmen of the wall of conservative leaning pastors and then leaders of this initiative, it's part of the Family Research Council, communicate to them and to their congreg and through them to their congregations the issues that should matter in election cycles. And you know, when they're talking to the pastors, it's all abortion all the time, right? It's like, you know, I I remember I was in this uh, gathering with a friend of mine who's a he's a conservative Bible believing pastor, but he takes a more nuanced sort of um, issue on some of these political, you know, questions. But, you know, so we went there to this thing. It's in rural North Carolina. We're sitting in this church and they're like, Tony Perkins gets up. He's the head of the Family Research Council. And he says, you know, I think I'm going to murder this I'm, I'm sort of quote. I, I don't have it in front of me. He said something to the effect of, um, you know, uh, well, he, he equated the um, Democratic Party with the force of darkness. And he said, I think we've, we're beginning to move back to a culture that respects uh, you know, to more godly culture, one that respects life. So what he's saying to these pastors is that the issues that should matter in election cycles and that you should communicate to your congregations are all about, you know, life, marriage, the defense of marriage. So here's the funny thing about the defense of marriage stuff. This is a movement that claims to stand for family values, but they are allied with politicians whose far-right economic policies that they're promoting are intensifying economic inequality and making it so much harder for American families to succeed. We know that um, you know family instability is highly correlated with economic instability. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry, there's a little bit of a digression, but that's all right. I was, all right. So I was at this, um, uh, I think it was the last Values Voter Summit, which was held on Zoom, and I heard Franklin Graham get up there and he said. You know, we're nostalgic for the America of the 1950s and early 1960s. And Donald Trump is nostalgic for that America, too. And that's why we support him. And I thought, OK, let's unpack that. OK, let's set aside the fact that in the 1950s and early 1960s, uh, you know, discrimination against people of color, women, uh, LGBT people, um, again, lesbians was was legal and, you know, across the board in banking policy, in um, in education policy in some places, in employment, and in all these other areas. But let's just set all of that aside, right? Let's just say that he's nostalgic for a time when the middle class was stronger. Well, let's just look at that. So in the 1950s, early 1960s, the average CEO made 20 times what their worker made, the average worker made for the, in their company. So 20 times is pretty good, right? You can get a house. Second house, maybe a boat, right? Uh, maybe take trips, send your kids to private school. So, you know, okay, so let's fast forward to 2017. The average CEO is making 361 times what the average worker, you know, average worker is making. Um, the average CEO of a Fortune 500, standard and poor Fortune 500 company makes over $14 million a year. 
I mean, we've really entered a new gilded age and it's making it so much harder for so many American families to succeed. You know, uh, we're just, you know, declining measures on health care, on education, on quality of life, on the ability to afford a home and all of these measures. So are because we you know. took prayer out of public schools, right? <laughs> I know. I'm kind of curious, like, I grew up in a, I mean, the community that I grew up in was very, uh, there was a lot of talk about how, like, the end is near. You know, it was apocalyptic in some ways, not, to, you know, to a Jim Jones extent or anything, but that we talked a lot about how, like, the world's falling apart and you know, this is kind of like the last chance to get on the lifeboat for the rest of humanity, you know, accept Jesus or get left behind. But I feel like that's religious nationalist movement is almost kind of like they're torn between the two. It's is, is the world falling apart and everything is like, you know, spiraling towards the, the apocalypse and the antichrist and all that stuff. Or is this like the new age of, of biblical leadership and Donald Trump's going to usher in a more godly form of government and get us back to our roots? Like, how are those people, how are they interpreting Trump's loss? I know some of them are just flat out denying it. They think he's still in power and Biden's like making... That's my favorite conspiracy theory right now, by the way. <laughs> that he's secretly, you know, behind their scenes, kind of like a, yeah. you know, puppeteer. <laughs> Gep funny. Geppetto. Well, here's the thing about that sort of apocalyptic rhetoric. If you are can convince people, and if you're persuaded you are in an absolute struggle between absolute good and absolute evil, um, and, you know, Anybody who doesn't believe like you is allied with the forces of secularism that is out there ransacking everything that's holy and good, right? Then, and this is, a, you know, completely existential struggle. Then every backroom deal with a corrupt dictator, with a nepotistic thief, every uh, violation of constitutional principles, every sacrifice of, um, you know, all of the... Um, principles that have basically served our country very well, um, imperfectly, right, but, you know, fairly well, um, you know, since our nation's founding, the sort of the ideals that we have never met perfectly, but and remain ideals of equality, pluralism, the right to vote, you know, the sacrifice of all that is okay, because, you know, I mean, and, and that ends up being a justification for ushering in more authoritarian forms of rule. I mean, you guys know about sort of dominionism and, you know, the sort of seven mountains mandate, the idea that um, only Christians of a certain type should dominate all aspects of government and society. Not every Christian nationalist is a seven mountains dominionist, but those ideas have filtered through um, uh, the movement and, and you can see echoes of them in some quarters that you wouldn't necessarily have seen before. And, you know, you were mentioning earlier something about like the founders of the movement. I, you know, in the book, I kind of trace the modern Christian nationalist movement back to a movement called the New Right and to leaders like Paul Weyrich and Howard Phillips and Phyllis Schlafly and uh, Jerry Falwell was also brought into that. Um, these were folks who were really unhappy with the Republican Party at the time. They felt it had become too soft on communism. They were really upset about the civil rights aspects of the civil rights movement. They were really upset that um, about school integration and the, you know, tax privileges 
might be taken away from schools that intentionally segregated kids by race, which was a disgusting thing to do, but they thought that that was their religious right. So um, they were kind of, you know, they wanted to ignite a hyper-conservative counter-revolution, right? And they were looking for an issue that they could choose to unite their new movement. They, you know, were not happy about the women's movement, but the area was going down in flames, and they had all these other issues. They they thought, you know, stop the tax on segregation wasn't really going to be a really great rallying cry for their movement. So they chose abortion as the issue that could unite conservative Protestants, hyper-conservative Catholics, and bring in, as Howard Phillips said, some of our fringe fundamentalist friends. They sort of, and and they get people to sort of, um, you know, they weren't remotely supportive of democracy. Paul Weirich, you can look this up. There's a video where he says, "I don't want everyone to vote. Our influence in elections goes down if voting, if the number of people who vote goes up, and our influence in elections goes up if the number of people who vote goes down." And that's. That gets the fact that it's an anti-democratic movement. They don't believe in representative democracy, you know? Yeah. Well, that he sounds uh, like a peach. <laughs> he's a very interesting character, incredibly influential. He founded a whole bunch of different organizations. Um, you know, when I look back at people like Weirich, I can't think of him as like, you know, I, I just kind of marvel that, that, that what, what one person can do. And it actually gives me hope. For today, I, I've seen through you know studying like the new right, how a small group of people who are really determined can make a huge difference in the course of history. You you were when you were talking about the the foundation of like the new right. So one of the things that I've I keep feeling like I might be getting tripped up on is um and having a hard time understanding when it comes to conservative ideology, because I mean, I identified as a conservative for the longest time. I voted, I, I even, and when I started shifting, like I, I would get to the voting booth and I'm like, I, maybe I'll vote third party this time. And like, I'm, I'm trying to like be a bit more nuanced and I would get there. And then I remember just defaulting to Republican and everything. Cause I was scared that something bad would happen if I didn't vote the right way. And so like, I, I, I'm not that far removed from that perspective. Uh, only 32 that was like early 20s it's you know so when i'm thinking about what these i knew what conservative ideologies were then only sort of and but of course abortion was a, a big deal um in you know the social policies of you can't just give everybody a handout otherwise they'll never learn to do anything for themselves like of course that one was there and um but when when you think back um to I guess what the conservative, what what the ideals were of like liberal and conservative when the new right started. I mean, of course, it, it sounds like it was social movements that really launched us into what we're still dealing with today. Um, and it's like sometimes you hear people talk about go. Oh, let's go back to a time when we just had uh, debates about policy and things like that. And um, so what, like what I don't really know. I guess what conservative ideals are outside of. It was at that pre the the religious right before people were having even these conversations about race and uh, LGBTQ issues. And then what are are their ideals today still really just based on on keeping people in certain I don't know keeping people where they're at or building up the resources for themselves. I, I don't know what the ideals are, and I feel like I have a hard time even getting straight answers from people who identify as conservative. 
That's really so much to think about in what you just said. You've touched on so many different, different interesting sort of aspects of the movement and the history. I mean, I think I would you know, start by pointing out that this movement is not remotely conservative, right? A genuinely conservative movement would try to affirm our democratic institutions that have served us over time. It would prize above all the power of the vote, the legitimacy of the judiciary, uh, the foundations of public education, which after all, um, serve 90% of American school children. It would seek to preserve the environment. I mean, conserve the environment. It would um, uh, embrace more of an incrementalist idea. But this is a radical movement. It really has no respect for um, those uh, institutions. So I don't see this as, I mean, it, they've actually tried to you know, overturn the results of a legitimately decided election. This is a movement that um, has like the movement has uh, as one of its main components, the sort of far right propaganda sphere, kind of fact free messaging sphere that tries to separate um, its um, you know its its viewers from the facts. And I just think this is is quite astonishing. It's it's a really radical movement. I mean, look at the 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 way that the you know these they they were actually you know. They could see themselves as truly patriotic, even as they were attacking the core institutions of our uh, democracy, you know, the Congress and um, and the electoral system. But yet, those folks who attacked the Capitol were motivated by people at the top. So, for instance, you know, what they were just like, you know, people who were sort of doing this. Many of them allied with white nationalist groups. Christian nationalism, Christian nationalist rhetoric was involved in a lot of those groups. But um, none of that would have been possible without people heading up the institutions and the sort of organizations of Christian nationalism, such as the Council for National Policy and its um, affiliated organizations promoting the idea, the great lie of a stolen election. It's a radical thing to do. Yeah, that was out of control. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, I mean, being that you're so plugged into this, it's funny because I'm, I was listening to some a couple other interviews with you uh, yesterday, and you're talking about these subjects and stuff. And but but you know they're eight ten months ago, and then you know two months ago we literally had like a an armed assault on the U.S. Capitol. Like, did you see that coming? I mean, did you predict that, or did you? Was it surprising to you, or and where did you think that was going to go when you're watching the TV coverage of people breaking into the the Capitol? You know what? I think the most shocking aspect of it for me was the gross and uh, un completely like undefensible lack of protection of the Capitol building. Um, the, this event was preceded by events over months where you've got these sort of far right religious leaders saying, you know, this is a moment where, you know, this is, you know, we were made for war. Um, you know, they're trying to, you know, uh, steal the election, the, Joe Biden is illegitimate, blah, blah, blah. Trump is promoting this. You had people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz promoting this. You had the Council for National Policy promoting this lie. And it's filtering down into a lot of the, you know, I, I, I watched people like Michelle Bachman and I watched a whole bunch of other, you know, religious leaders sort of promoting this lie, whipping up their folks into a frenzy, right? 
And then we knew that there was going to be this Stop the Steal uh, rally, but it was preceded by this Jericho March rally, which is also branded as a Stop the Steal rally. You had uh, folks like Ali Alexander and other, you know, leaders in, in, in that movement sort of whipping up the crowd in a frenzy. And so all of that, I mean, I couldn't believe how few police there were. How how the you know how long it took in did did the national guard I mean how long did it take the national guard to show up I mean it was really horrific and 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 those uh, officers really suffered uh, some were you know brutally beaten some were killed others lost their you know an eye limbs I mean wouldn't what, what a disgusting thing to do to your police yeah that especially was, from that the, was the part that surprised me the most. They didn't from back the blue, the blue lives matter. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was really, it was really disgusting. So, I mean, I know we're um, disgraceful. Yeah, I know we're rounding the end of our time here. So, I, I think I kind of just want to close us out with, in light of that, you know, what we've experienced in the past couple months, and, and all the information you break down in your book. Um, I mean, you mentioned being hopeful, almost hopeful, when you see what one person can do. But what's kind of like? It feels like this movement's growing, and I feel like more and more people especially from my my life uh, that i knew from my conservative evangelical days like i i see the ones who are still in it so many of them are grappling onto these messages and i feel like it's getting worse and that's troubling to me but maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe even the insurrection was a bit of an awakening but i think the effect of that is kind of wearing off on some people what um what's I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts on like the response to that as maybe from conservatives or liberals or whatever? You know, the movement only succeeds because it gets people to vote in disproportionate numbers. They have invested for decades in um, all of these, you know, features of modern political campaigns like data, media messaging, all the stuff that is designed to turn out the vote. They're very, very um very uh, practical in that way. Sometimes I feel like um, those who oppose the politics of conquest and division, um, sort of to the sort of moderate liberal left, are often focused on statements or declarations or marches. But um, this is a movement that's like very much focused on the political here and now. But the only reason that they win is because they vote in disproportionate numbers and to some extent because they've gamed the system through, you know, gerrymandering and some, and some voter suppression. Um, so, like, to get a handle on their numbers, and then I'm going to get around to what I think we can do, but I think, you know, to get a handle on their numbers, we can look at somebody like George Barna, who showed that the most committed religious right voters, Christian nationalist voters, which he call, he gives them a different acronym, but it's essentially Christian nationalists, are disproportionately involved in the political process, but they vote in extremely high numbers. They're only 9% of the population in, in 2020, but 97 turned out to vote in, in that election, and 99% cast their vote for Trump. So if you get a small number of people voting in those disproportionate numbers, where the average, say, 100 people, you're only going to get like a much smaller number voting for the other side proportionally, that's how you win. So, you know, Ralph Reed put this way. He said, pay no attention to the polls. Our numbers are shrinking. The only thing that matters is who turns out on election day. So, you know, the answers, you know, this is a political problem. I think the answers are political too. Um, we can do everything they do. I was at an evangelicals for Trump event, um, before 2020 and, uh, 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 
one of the folks on the stage said, become an evangelist for the vote. I was like, yes, we should all be evangelists for the vote. Help people understand that their vote really matters, not just in national cycles, but down, you know, the state and local elections as well. They get their agenda met. It's not a, a performative thing. They, their agenda is enacted through the courts and through state legislatures. And that's where things really matter. There's no substitute for the power of the vote. So, you know, holding others accountable. Um, sometimes I feel like we make the perfect the enemy of the good. Like the candidate might be somebody who said something really dumb in 1986 or maybe voted the wrong way in a bill and, you know, in 2001. But you know what? you got to kind of look at the field and say, where is my vote going to have the most impact? Mm-hmm. I think secondly, there are things we can only do when we join together, like, um, you know, getting involved in policy groups that advocate for our interests or values and supporting organizations that support the separation of church and state. Um, you know, I think the right achieves, you know, a lot of its aims through the courts, but you know, frankly, we're in a bad place in that front right now. But if we have the resources and patience to be strategic, I think perhaps we can hold the line on certain issues and work toward a, a more just future. Yeah, that sounds great. Hopefully uh, we can make some progress in the upcoming years. Yeah. Is there, I don't know if you want to plug anything. I don't know if you get oh, before uh, you. Uh, uh, you know, I wrote this book. It's called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. <laughs> and uh, it's sold everywhere books are sold. And it's, um, and, and I'm all, also on Twitter. It's Kath S. Stewart. There are two S's there. And I'm really grateful to you guys for hosting me for today's discussion. Yeah. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We really appreciate your time and thoughts and your 10 years of research that we just condensed into about 45 minutes. So I, everyone should really buy a copy of the book. It's been astounding. Your jaw will drop every few sentences with some of the information (laughs) you find. You're just, and we, we are sorry for your loss. I know Rush Limbaugh meant a lot to you. Um, (laughs) Just, just pour one out for me. (laughs) all right well thanks everyone uh thanks a lot Catherine. we appreciate your time thank you it's really great to chat all right guys thanks for listening and we will catch you next time